Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Kat Gaines, and you can find me on Twitter at strawberryfield using the number one for the letter I. Welcome back to Page It to the Limit. Today we are talking about career paths from customer support into mainly engineering, but there are a whole bunch of ways that that can be twisted and you'll hear about that a little bit more as we go on. So just a quick intro why we're talking about this. Personally, it's something that I'm passionate about. I came from a tech support background before I moved into DevRel and our three guests have similar feelings. They feel passionate about it, have had some similar career paths. And really customer support is a difficult role. No matter where you are, no matter how awesome your team is, it's a really hard role. You're feeling a lot of feelings from customers, from anyone who will take advantage of you lending your ear to listen all the time. But it's also a role that gives you a lot of expertise on the products you support and the customers who use them. It's a role that gives you that expertise in a way that other teams don't always get the chance to. They don't always get the chance to be that close to customers, to experience what they experience, to get to know their feelings so deeply and intimately. So when customer support agents move into engineering, product, other teams in the business, they bring that familiarity to those teams. So what we want to do today is talk about those benefits. We want to talk about some stigmas about people who come from a support background that we really want to squash once and for all. And we want to talk about a lot of things. So let's just get into it. So we're joined today. We're lucky we have not one, but we have three guests. We have Pablo Gonzalez from Salto, and then we have two Dutonians. That's what we call pager duty employees internally, Andrew Burke and Isabella Applin. So real quick, Isabella, I'll start with you. Just say who you are and what you do at your company for your listeners. I'm Isabella, and I work on one of our site reliability engineering teams here at Pager Duty. And Andra, we'll go to you next. Hey, uh, I'm Andra. I'm a security engineer, uh, and uh, I've been at the company for about four years now. And Pablo, round us out. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Um, so my name is Pablo. I am. I have a different title. Doesn't sound as cool as yours. Mine is business engineering architect, which I think is a little bloated. But that is in a company called Salto, which is an Israeli startup. And I'm actually quite new there. I've, I've only been there for around six months. Awesome. Um, I'm going to disagree with you. I think that everybody's jobs sound really cool. And that's what we're here to talk about. So just a level set for our listeners on what we mean when we say customer support. So customer support are your frontline people. They field questions from your customers. They help them solve problems. They troubleshoot things. They develop a lot of feelings about the product as a result. Their general duties involve, again, bringing those feelings back from customers into the business, letting your, in a software company, product and engineering teams kind of know what the pulse of the customer is. At PagerD, we actually used to have a newsletter called Pulse of the Customer that our support team published. So um, we could bring those insights into the business. Career paths is the discussion today for a lot of reasons. The job is really hard, as I mentioned earlier. There's a really high burnout capacity after a few years. It's awesome to want to be career support, but not everybody wants to do that all of the time. For example, I had my entire career in tech support. So straight out of college, I went into tech support. I bounced around a couple of different companies 
companies over a couple of years. I landed at PagerDuty. I went into leadership and tech support. I had a lot of fun doing it, but eventually I wanted to try something else. And so when the opportunity came up, somebody in our advocates team was moving on from the company and tapped me and said, maybe you should apply for my role. I went ahead and did it because it sounded interesting. Public speaking is something I like to do. Thinking creatively about how we solve problems is something that I like to do. And I saw a lot of opportunity to do those things as part of the role. And it was a refreshing way to take the things that I loved about my existing job and expand them out a little bit more into something else. So folks, if each of you could talk us through your career path briefly, um, I'll start with one of you, but then just jump in whoever wants to go next. Pablo, why don't you talk us through? Um, yeah, so I've been in technical support for, for many years. I started right out of high school when I was 18 years old. I did technical support for uh, cable TV, which is really tough. Um, there's a lot of uh, feelings there, very upset customers. Um, I did that for about two and a half years. Then I moved to technical support for Salesforce, uh, which is a business platform. And I did that for about five years. And I was able to experience all the roles in technical support. I started in triage, then I did uh, tier one, eventually tier two, then tier three support. And I ended up in mission critical support. After five years, I felt like I only knew Salesforce. So I moved to Marketo and I had a tier three engineering role there as well. That had been already too many years in support. And, and I really felt like I wanted to do something a little bit more challenging. Not that support is not challenging, but just challenging in a, in a different way. I guess a little bit more creative. So I eventually was able to move to uh, software development for the Salesforce platform. Um, how I move is a whole story that maybe I can talk about later, but uh, that's the gist. Then for the last few years, I've been in software development specifically for the Salesforce platform. And that's how I ended up in Salto because we have products that integrate with Salesforce and they needed a Salesforce expert in-house. And now I'm helping the engineering team, product marketing, pretty much everyone create the best product we can, uh, you know, that we can come up with. So that's sort of the story more or less. Yeah. I had, um, I had kind of a similar experience. I started out about eight years ago um, and I was just building and repairing PCs uh, at like a little computer repair shop. Um, after that though, I uh, took on a support role at like a mom and pop internet service provider, but they also had like a colo facility and web hosting servers. So I ended up doing a little bit of everything. Uh, so I did like field operations and sysadmin work and obviously tech support for internet connectivity issues and issues with, um, you know, hosted websites and, and things like that. And then from there, I moved into another support role at my first SaaS company, uh, troubleshooting a JavaScript application. And then after a couple of years of that, I joined PagerDuty as a support engineer. And um, I was a support engineer for a couple of years before I moved over to security. I guess I'll go next. I went to a coding boot camp in San Francisco, and our main project was the fully functioning web app that we build entirely. We're supposed to present our apps at a company in San Francisco, and for my class, it happens to be at PagerDuty. And so I met people there at that event, and then I started working there. Um, and I started as a support engineer and 
I, about six months ago, I transferred to one of our site reliability engineering teams. So yeah, we have a lot of different but similar paths. And I think what folks are probably hearing as they listen to the podcast is that there's multiple ways to kind of get there and approach whatever it is that you want to do eventually. And I've known a number of people who've kind of thought, started out thinking that they want to do one thing and then they've done support for a while and eventually found their way to that thing. And it's not always necessarily the linear path that you maybe had in mind when you started, but you get there eventually. And as I was mentioning earlier, what you bring is really interesting to the team. Something else that kind of happens sometimes is that sometimes those moves can be a little bit difficult. Sometimes they're not easy to facilitate, whether you're the person who wants to move, the person on the team that they want to move to who's trying to help them or their manager trying to make that move happen. I'm going to say like from personal experience, um, from having managed folks to moving to different teams from support, it's always been creative. There's never been one prescribed path that that's how we get here. Um, even at PagerDuty, we eventually developed like a set of guidelines for moving between teams, but that came after a lot of just kind of, well, we'll figure it out as we go along. And we'll just kind of make up whatever works and we'll get people wherever they are, whenever it makes sense. And things happen just a little bit kind of off the cuff and randomly sometimes. And we need to be pretty creative to make some of those happen. But I think we learned a lot because of it too. I think other things that we learn sometimes are other people's perceptions of what support is. So we have people here who have had support engineer in their title. And sometimes people in other teams look at that and say, that's not an engineer. You don't know what you're doing. Um, That's a lie. That's crap. So anyone who's thinking that, yes, support engineers do know what they're doing. Um, There are a lot of stigmas around what support is and how much skill people in support have, how much technical ability they have. Something I'm personally on a campaign for right now is to stop talking about support and technical staff as separate staff because they are one in the same, but it's something that people differentiate between quite a lot. Um, And there's just too much exclusivity around career paths and techs in times. We treat it like this cool kids club that people have to try to get into. If you didn't come from the right background or um, if you didn't follow exactly the path that somebody else thought you should follow, people might take you less seriously. And I will personally admit that I've kind of shouted people down over the years about needing people to follow an exact path um, to make sure that they're exactly what they envision for someone on their staff. Because again, those views can be really harmful and what you bring to a team is different. That's the most valuable thing. Folks, I'm going to open it up to the floor. Like who wants to share thoughts on just like stigmatizing support agents, what teams should be looking at other than just the resume and the things that you've done? What else should they be looking at if they're considering bringing somebody from support into their team? Yeah, so I can definitely talk about a couple of stigmas. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, though. Like one stigma, it's probably like the most common uh, is that if you're in support, you know, your communications are scripted and your technical aptitude is below par. It's like this idea that, you know, if you're in support, you don't understand systems design. You don't really know anything about networking. uh, You probably don't know how to code. So that's a big one. But there's another kind of stigma that I've been subjected to. And it's it's like once you're in a couple of support roles, it's really, really easy to get pigeonholed into support roles. Um, so I can give you an example. My old director wrote um, an article about diverse hiring practices. And so, you know, I don't have a 
computer science background. So she mentioned me and my background. But after that, I received like this massive influx of really low level support recs. And it was super weird because it's like, no, like I'm a security engineer. That's literally what the article was about. Like I can do more than just support roles. Yeah, no, I've also experienced uh, similar things. It's also not what people think support is. It's also your own perception, right? Like the the imposter syndrome. Like I I struggled with that a lot for many years. And I would say that that was probably the main driver for me to move away from from technical support is I didn't feel like I was one of the cool kids, right? I felt like I was doing support. I wasn't doing programming or, or engineering stuff. And... I, I'm not sure what creates this problem or, or where it's coming from, but I think there's this misconception that support is somehow just not part of the software development lifecycle. And anyone who's created products would know that a product spends most of its life cycle in a support stage, right? Like the part where you develop the product and all that is it, it's very um, much the beginning, but then for the rest of his life cycle, it's it's all about supporting that product, you know, enhancing it, um, making upgrades, etc. So there is a huge need for people supporting a product, and I don't understand why there's this misconception that you know engineering is is just that developing phase, uh, just the coding part. Um, I also feel that another problem is that the practice of coding or programming is also glorified within the same uh, umbrella of of different careers. Like, for example, uh, you move to security and some people may still not even consider that real software engineering, right? Because they might think, well, you're not coding, right? You're not using the latest uh, JavaScript framework of the week. So you're not a real uh, software engineer. Um, Of course, I'm not saying that, but I'm, I'm saying some people will still think like that even if you got out of uh, support. And, and it's because somehow the practice of coding, uh, it's like put on, on a pedestal. And again, I, I, I don't know where this comes from, um, but it is very hard to get out of this idea that, 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 all, that the only thing you can do is support. And I think one of you mentioned, once you do support for a few years, the, the more you stay in support, the harder it is to get out. And it's it's like you have a, a stamp on your head that says technical support and recruiters, managers, everyone will see you through this lens of a support person, not not an engineer, not a, a technical person. And it's really, really challenging to get out of that. Yeah, I wonder if it's, you know, if it might be a little bit self-perpetuating. I think historically also, I think it maybe wasn't uncommon for support teams to kind of be siloed from the engineering org. So engineers and support engineers and, you know, technical support specialists, they weren't interacting, you know, as, as regularly as maybe they should have been. I think, you know, at least in my experience, once I've built rapport with, uh, you know, software engineering teams, it definitely changes the entire dynamic. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, that, that would definitely be the first piece of advice that I would have for someone who's looking to move out of a support position is definitely get to know your dev teams and start to build rapport with them because you, you can be the most competent and capable person in the world, but your career progression is just going to be a lot harder if you don't have a relationship with those teams. 
I want to plus one that. And I think that's also part of owning your career progression. Sometimes people look elsewhere and say, well, oh, my manager has to do it or the team I want to go to has to figure it out. And like, they'll be your aid. They'll help you find that path. But at the end of the day, you have to be the one to say, this is where I want to go. And these are some steps I'm going to take to personally get there, right? Let's talk about that rapport a little. Um, I think that all of you probably have some experience in building that as part of your career progression. So let's talk about how you did that. Because I think that's something that people get stuck on a little bit in terms of just like, well, how do I get to know these teams? How do I put my name in front of them, right? I think for me, the only way that I was able to do it was to become really good at what I was doing, sort of to get noticed, right? Like if you are, for example, when I was in tier three, then the escalations would be the actual uh, engineering team. So I put a lot of effort to, like I wanted to be a very well-known tier three. Like when, when engineering would get an escalation from me, they would say, oh, great, it's an escalation from Paolo. I know it's going to be good. It's going to have a lot of details. It's going to have all the logs, all this stuff. And of course, I did that because I enjoyed it as well. But a big part of it was also that effort of, you know, these are the people that can eventually help me move into that role. And, and I want to be the best I can uh, in, in their eyes. So I put a lot of effort in making sure that that everything I did was of high standard. And also, if you have the opportunity to just meet them in person, right? It's different now with remote work and all, but like if you have like an offsite event, just really, you know, breaking that barrier of, of remote work and being able to have a coffee with someone or a chat with someone really helps a lot. But for me personally, as I said, what worked was to become as technical as possible so that I could sort of impress them and so that they would think of me as a, as a possible candidate for a position in their team. I don't know that that's the only way, but that's what worked for me. What else? Isabella, do you have anything? I do think that my transfer is kind of exceptional and not a good example. <laughs> because but It's so good for people to hear about, right? Because those, those like kind of strange ones happen all the time, like I was saying earlier. It's just funny because I, on support, I had contact with a lot of our engineering teams, but like mostly feature teams or security, but there was really never an occasion for me to contact infrastructure teams. So site reliability was one of the departments that I really had no relationship with at all. <laughs> so it's kind of funny that I ended up there, but I think what my manager found appealing about support engineers is that we have like a customer first mindset and we're very like our whole job has been serving developers. So that part of transitioning to SRE made a lot of sense. I'm just going to use SRE instead of site reliability engineering. Yeah, they saw that benefit back to the business, right? And I think it's I think it's probably twofold. Um it's the benefit back to the business and knowing, you know, kind of the, how having someone who's familiar with your customers and your developers in that way can help you understand what you're doing on that side a little bit more. And then I think it's also, Pablo, like you said, the reputation thing. So folks may have connected the dots. Other people listening to this might know this, but Andrew and Isabella both used to be on the PagerDuty support team, as they mentioned. I used to manage both of them on the PagerDuty support team. The reputation piece is huge because for each one of you, people would often come to me 
me and, you know, just say how grateful they were for something super cool you did partnering with engineering or another team in the business. And even if it's not a team that you're working with directly, Isabel, like you're saying, that word spreads, right? And so if you've been working with the development teams, the people who are working on the features, that word will still spread back to SRE teams, other teams who aren't working on those things so that they know that like, okay, Isabella, she knows what she's doing. She does quality work and she's somebody worth having this conversation with at the very least. There is another topic um, sort of related is that it's also hard work. Like, you know, just because you're in technical support and you want to move to some engineering role, even if you have the connections, you may actually not have the skills at that time to be able to perform well in that job, right? So that that's also a huge part is that you have to also have the skills and and not everyone has them in support. I, obviously, I'm not saying, I'm not, be, I'm not being the person that, that we are uh, sort of uh, criticizing here, but it is a reality that you just don't have all those skills naturally in support. So for example, something like coding, or troubleshooting very specific database performance issues or network issues, they may not come naturally to you depending on the type of support that you're doing. So there is a little bit of homework that you have to do to understand, okay, what is the ideal role for me? What kind of technology do I want do I want to specialize in? And, you know, put in some work. You have to spend some time learning that, maybe buying some books or some Udemy courses or YouTube tutorials. And, and really get the skills that you need and then everything else that we have discussed. But I think that's also a, a huge part as well. Yeah, and just to touch on that, you know, to, previously we, were, we, were, we kind of touched on uh, some things to look at when you're, when you're hiring, right? And I think that is one thing to look at because you can teach someone technical skill. Um, you know, you can teach someone how to troubleshoot something specific. You can't teach someone to be interested and you can't teach someone to be passionate. So, you know, the willingness to be open about things uh, that you don't know, that's also going to just make it a lot easier to, to work with that person because it kind of indicates that, you know, their ego isn't wrapped up in this idea of knowing everything. So if they're interested, passionate and, you know, kind of honest about the things that they know and they don't know. Um, those are all like really big green flags, in my opinion. Yeah. And it's like a patience with skills both ways. So, you know, probably you're saying you might need to be self-aware if you're just like not ready yet and you need to know that and you need to know what you need to work on. And then Andrew, what you're saying that if you're a hiring manager, you need to be able to look at that person and say, okay, maybe they're not ready yet in a way that ticks all of my boxes, but how quickly can they learn? Is it worth taking this risk? And I've seen people find that more often than not, it is worth taking the risk and it pays off for them when they do. As a sidebar, a pet peeve that I have um, is also the discussion of skills in the sense of soft skills. I really have come to hate that term so much because they're hard skills to learn. What we talk about when we say soft skills, right? People are usually talking about empathy. They're talking about communication. They're talking about human-facing and human-centered skills. So I started saying that instead, human-centered skills, or just what we actually mean, communication skills, because they're super necessary in customer-facing roles. It's everybody's responsibility to learn them, though, even if they don't think their role demands it. And so I think it's awesome when 
a team is considering somebody from support, they know that they have those human-centered skills and that they can not teach their peers because it's not their responsibility, but maybe lead by example a little bit when they come into the team and say, well, this is how we do this and this is how we do this right if maybe the team's struggling with it or maybe they haven't been challenged <laughs> to learn those skills for some reason. It happens more often than you'd think. I'm not saying that people are just you know cold and difficult to work with on other sides of the business, but it can happen that you have people who need a little bit of work on that. And so if they can see by example that they have peers who do that really, really well, that's another kind of good benefit back to the business and that team. Yeah. At my at my last company, I was uh, I was given extra soft skills training uh, because of how like gruff I was. Uh, you know, to be fair, I think at the time I just had less emotional maturity, but yeah, I was originally very insulted by the fact that I had to take this extra training. I completed it, but, you know, begrudgingly. In hindsight, though, that was probably some of the best free training I've ever gotten. I think people are getting better about this now. But, you know, at the time, there was almost this misconception that a technical position was solely about technical skill. So if you are think if you think about it, though, like technical skill is not going to diffuse uh, like misunderstanding. It's, it's, it's not going to prioritize things on a roadmap or like uh, a security focused example, like a CVE is not going to convince a team to bump something down on their roadmap, right? It's a collection of letters and numbers. It's meaningless. So you need soft skills uh, to be able to approach that situation and explain risk and to help prioritize. It's, it is really important. Yeah, they're not soft skills, though. That's that's what Kat is saying right there. Uh, what did you say? Human-centered. Human-centered. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Human-centered skills, hard skills, yeah, hard skills. <laughs> for a lot of people. Yeah. I think it's it's yeah, it's very important because especially like when I used to work in in tier three again, it's very easy for someone in engineering to say when you know when you escalate a problem, and they can say, oh, you know, it's actually not a bug. It's it's working as design even though it doesn't make any sense whatsoever and it's clearly a bug, they'll say, well, it is working as a sign. They close the investigation and then good luck. Go tell the customer. Now, of course, you cannot just go tell the customer, hey, it's working as a sign. Thanks for, for reaching out and, and have a good day. You really need to do a lot of uh, acrobatics and gymnastics to, <laughs> to, to massage that, that same message into something that, you know, that has a little empathy, uh, that makes sense, and the customer is going to be somewhat okay with. And that actually takes a lot of practice. It's not easy. It's not, and there's no recipe for it. There's no script that you can just follow. So it, it does take a lot of practice, and I think it's often overlooked how important that is, right? If, if you were to put the actual engineer on a call with the customer, that call would go completely different than you know, if it's someone that that has those uh, human-centered skills to be able to deliver the message in, in in the correct way. Yeah, support acrobats. I think that's what um, a lot of people should get their title changed to because it's very true <laughs> a lot of the time. Okay, so before we wrap up, there are two things that we ask every guest on this show, and these are kind of hard questions to answer, but we'll get through them. Um, Isabella, I'll start with you. And then Andra and Pablo, you can jump in as, as you want. What's one thing you wish you would have known sooner when it comes to career moves between support and other departments? I think I knew this. I think it was just really, really hard for me to act on. 
but I think it's so important to treat your career progression as part of your day-to-day job. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to think of that as something that's in the future or something that's more high level and abstract. And it really needs to be a part of your tasks that you do every day and that you focus on every day and put time into every day. Um, it can't be something that is just on the back burner or is just abstract. 100%. Yeah. Something that I wish I had known sooner is actually how to determine whether or not career progression is even going to be possible where you are. If you're experiencing things like uh, the goalpost keeps moving, or if you're siloed from engineering teams, you know, if, you're, if your manager doesn't care about and doesn't help prioritize your career progression, you need to get out of there. That's definitely something I wish I had learned sooner. Yep. There are absolutely major red flags where you need to just know if it's not going to happen for you. Pablo, how about you? What's one thing you wish you would have known sooner? You should try to focus on exactly what is it that you want to do. So when I was trying to move away from technical support, I bounced uh, on a lot of ideas. You know, I'm going to do big data. No, I'm going to do web development. No, I'm going to do actually uh, networking or uh, site reliability. And all those things are actually very different. And it is very easy to get distracted uh, with all the different topics that you can learn. And you end up becoming a generalist, which is not a bad thing. It's actually great for support, (laughs) but it's not necessarily great for for a specific role. So I think I wasted a lot of time uh, trying to find exactly what was it that I wanted to really learn. So I wish I had just known that, hey, Spend some weeks just thinking about it and then decide on what you want to do and, and, and go with that, right? Rather than spending months learning all these different technologies and different approaches, trying to figure out what is it that I wanted. Yeah. And Isabella, that's part of the same thing that you said, right? Your career progression is an everyday job. And so you really have to spend that time thinking about where you're going and what you're doing. And I think what people don't realize is that I think people get freaked out by the idea of thinking and talking about that every day because it's like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going to be in, you know, six months, a year, five years. That doesn't change ever. I have never figured it out for myself and I've done all kinds of stuff. And I think everybody here would probably say the same. You're constantly figuring out and constantly working on it. People get really just deer in the headlights thinking that they need to have the answer from day one when their manager says, all right, let's talk about your career progression. And they go, oh, oh no, I need to know right now. What? But in reality, you don't. You get to figure it out. You get to try different things, but you do have to kind of pick a path or two and hone in on it and say, okay, what do I need to do to get that path. And if it doesn't work, cool, flip over to something else. But you do want to be able to at least focus, be able to say, all right, I tried this thing. And now I know either that it's the thing I'm going to continue going for, or yeah, it's not for me. That's okay. Oh, another um, something more specific that I thought of was something I wish I had known was just like the internal engineering recruiting channel at our company. I didn't find out about that channel until like last year. And that was probably on me for not asking around more, but something I wish I had known and acted on sooner was just keeping track of those positions that open up and applying to them very aggressively and very regularly. Even if I 
start annoying engineering managers or <laughs> recruiters, um, but to just be very aggressive about that. And I think I also wish I had asked other people who transferred from support before me exactly what they did. Cause I, I would just kind of ask the other people who were still on support, like, Oh, how did that person transfer to engineering? And that version probably wasn't as accurate as the actual person's firsthand account. Yeah. Knowing your resources. I think I, I didn't even know about that channel for a long time. And as somebody who is moving folks from support into engineering, that was really frustrating to find out after the fact that it could have been a thing for a while. Um, and so I think there's a lot about like sharing information and like you're saying, also asking folks for information. So asking the right folks, asking what they did. But then if you're somebody who knows something, for heaven's sake, share with your peers, let them know what you did. If you had a successful transfer, that's part of why we're doing this podcast, I think, um, because we want other people to benefit from it too. But then also, you know, if you're in other roles, if you're a manager who knows exactly how somebody did something, share that information. Don't make it a secret. Don't think that you're going to keep your support people forever because that is just delusional um you know and make sure that people know what the paths are and how to get there or if you're somebody in engineering and you know these great resources like slack channels where people can go find information go tell people in other parts of the business so they know and they can use them and you can all benefit the other question is the hard one i think but we'll give it a shot is there anything about this topic that y'all are glad i did not ask about i guess it's good that we didn't talk about how many different versions of my CV I had for all the different jobs that I was trying to apply to, because that would have been a long conversation. Do you have a number? No, but I, I, I had a, a lot of different resumes, different CVs, uh, trying to portray myself as, as something else for different recruiters. Mm. But, you know, that was part of the journey, uh, I guess. But yeah, I think it's good we didn't talk about that. <laughs> Probably good that we didn't talk about using macros considering the whole stigma around support not being scripted. <laughs> Look, it's not scripted, but sometimes you need a shortcut because it gets repetitive a lot, right? <laughs> yeah, it's true. All right. So last thing, if we have anything we want folks to check out a call to action, folks, do we have anything that we want people to go look at after this episode? Um, yeah, so for me, I wrote an article on the website of my employer, again, that's Salto, and the article is about how I did the move from technical support to software development. So it's pretty much what we spoke here, but obviously in a lot more detail, and there are some of my personal recommendations on which books uh, you should read and how you should change your CV to be more about the technical skills. So that's on the notes for this uh, podcast. So you, if you want to check it out um, and give me some feedback on LinkedIn, that would be great. All right. And then I think I personally have one and it's a topic we didn't talk about very much, but it's the importance of community and knowing that there are other people out there going through the same stuff as you and knowing that there are other people out there who are trying to figure this out. That's actually hard to find when you're in support. It's hard to find out who those people are and where those conversations happen. Um, so I want to plug the support-driven Slack community. We'll link that in the show notes too, along with Popple's article, but go check it out. They have a conference that just happened a couple of weeks ago every year, I think too. So, you know, it's like a legitimate community, which again, is a very hard thing to find when you're in support, but it's a really great place to go 
bounce ideas and questions off of other people who are in tech support across all kinds of industries. It's something that I found really helpful over the years. I think I've probably lurked more than I've contributed, but you know, lurking and gathering information and then contributing where I can. Um, so I definitely encourage people to go check that out. I want to thank all three of you for this conversation. It's been really awesome to have y'all on the podcast and hang out a little bit. And thanks to our listeners too for listening. And we're excited to have more of these types of conversations. So um, without further ado, again, my name is Kat Gaines, and we hope you have an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making the podcast possible. Remember to subscribe in your favorite podcatcher if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com, and you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. Thank you so much for joining us, and remember, uneventful days are beautiful days. Hey!